0: This is an experiment with podcasting. I am Alan Winson.
1: And I am Rebecca McCain of Bar Crawl Radio. And we are with...
2: Chris Kretz. I am one of the hosts of the Long Island History Project. Bar Crawl Radio and my podcast, we're, we're different. My guests are historians, museum curators, uh, people who talk about the history of this magical place we call Long Island. No, right,
1: I'm, there there I'm you a, go. I'm going to interrupt. I'm going to just say we've had some... Pieces on ours that would qualify as, uh, as history. A, a history. Uh, right, right. No, right. Yeah. Statues. But we, we applaud that, yep. Yeah.
0: But we, we kind of focus on other things. And Bar Crow Radio is about having great conversations at our neighborhood bars.
1: So we decided to bring together those two podcast objectives to do a dual podcast about prohibition on Long Island at a new neighborhood bar in Pechock. Did I say that right?
2: Patchogue.
0: Patchogue. Pat there we go. Right.
2: So I'll be using this recording for the next episode of the Long Island History Project,
0: and, and we, we will, will be using this for All Bar, Bar, Bar 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 Radio. Radio. Okay. So we are re- uh, recently uh, at the um, recently going to be open, new bar in Patchogue. It's going to be a Nashville, new Nashville flavor theme. bar. They haven't really come up with a name for it yet. They have a, a working name, but we're not allowed to say it.
1: More Johnny Cash. Yeah, you know,
0: because former they're not-, not
1: rock. Hop was the former name.
0: It was formerly Hoptron, but now it's, it's switching over. And, and um, they don't know
1: the new name yet.
0: I thought we might talk a little bit now, Chris and Becky, with how do we know each other? Um, two different podcasts, and how did we get together? Um, and it kind of happened at this thing called MapCon.
1: Right? Yes, yes. The um, uh, Mid Atlantic
2: podcast, podcast, podcast Convention. Convention. Right. right. And
0: and it two was years in, ago, yeah. Sweet, it was in Swedesboro. Swedesboro. Yes. Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Sweet,
1: sweet, Swedesboro. I
0: was thinking Sweetsboro, and I go, that couldn't be right. Swedesboro. Swedesboro. Right. Swedesboro. Right. And and um, the thing that, that bonded us, Chris. And I back think. In. Well, we were all from New
2: York. There weren't that many of us from New York.
0: That's okay. true. And this we, we were sitting first.
1: at the same table.
0: Yes. Right. But then we were in a contest. We were in a podcast contest, which they hold every year at this MapCon, which is now going to be called... Indo, Indo, Ip, Ip, uh, independent. Icon. Independent. Uh, independent. Podcasters podcast Conference. Podcast Conference, right. Uh, yes, right. Um, and, and so they had this contest... And they gave us a challenge to create a podcast idea in, in five minutes, or
2: a five-minute podcast. Yeah, a five-minute five minute podcast. podcast. We had 30
0: minutes to do it and to record it. And we had to use
2: 12. Was it 12 words? Or they gave us words. Five to use. words. Five gave words. Five words. words. We had that to was hard enough. Yeah. Five little. words,
1: and we had to have an intro and an outro and music. And, and music. A logo. And, and, and a
0: logo. Yeah. And, and, and a, logo. a logo. And we did it in 30 minutes,
1: which is really not that easy, guys.
0: Right. No. And it was. It was about uh, um, kind of a. a, lo- a lo- Lascivious, luscious um, 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 podcaster who was doing a podcast on on booze.
1: Yeah, loquacious and luscious. And, yeah. Yes. And, and a lush.
0: And then and then we had call-ins and uh, it was um, One, one, one nip will never do. That was the and name Chris of it. And
1: Chris played a man who had three nips yeah, th- from
0: from <laughs> Long Island. Yes. Three nips and uh, okay, it was it was good. And was one of the high points of my life, I tell you. And <laughs> and I have to say. <laughs>
1: Me we, too.
0: we won that podcast contest. We did. Yes. With, I,
1: with our with our other uh, podcast partner uh, Max, the blind Max Max blogger Ivey. Max Ivy, the, the
0: blind the blogger wonderful Max yes. Ivy, right, yes. um, and and so we won the two two of the mics that we're using today were from that from that uh, thing, and then we saw you this year at the more um, recent yes. one, and it, and we should say kudos to you too because
2: you re, you repeated as champions, your team won again. We won, we,
1: we won
0: again, right? I, we did. I think I'm going to retire. <laughs>
1: Not me. Oh, I'm going top. to find some new partners then.
0: <laughs> I, I figured out what, how, to, how to win that contest. Just be silly. Well, yes. yeah. yeah. And it's like, I, Humor. I I live silly. It's like, you know. Yeah. It's been my whole life is to be
2: silly. So I, we're going back to Swedesboro. It's next year. It'll be back at the Holiday Inn in Swedesboro. So if you see Alan Winston, get him on your team. <laughs> lock him up early.
1: Are we going back to Swedesboro?
0: <laughs> yes, I just read that on uh, the just okay. yeah. part. Uh, okay. yeah, we, we won yeah. this year on the podcast called Be Careful. Okay. Be yeah. careful. Be yeah, it very, was very careful. It was, fun. It, was but fun. it was
1: It's a great uh, conference, and if, you wanna, if you're want interested in becoming a podcaster, it's, I think, a really good place to go. Get a lot of information, insight, and inspiration. We, we, have a,
0: we have a podcaster with us today listening on the headset. Yes. Uh, yes,
2: we, uh, I'll just fill in. We, we had our first Long Island Podcasters Meetup uh, previous to this, and Peter Ward from Brentwood Public Library is with us, um, starting his own podcast soon, so learning uh, all the things that you could do with it.
0: Right, and let, let's give it. Let's give a shout out. The name of the podcast is.
1: It's going to be. Brentwood Stories. And is it going to be uh, history? Yes, it's going to be uh, the
3: history of the Brentwood community and going back to its origin as modern times, which is the first intentional community on Long Island.
0: Nice. All right. All Very right. nice. All right. Okay. Uh, so there, there, there we go. Something to look up. Brentwood stories. Yeah, so we are, right. we
2: are spreading the podcast movement all across uh, the, the Northeast here. Great.
1: Very good.
0: Great. Today we are talking
2: about prohibition. No better place to do it than, than in a bar, of I think. Of course. And we, before we introduce our special learned guest, let's get some facts about this uh, time and this moment in U.S. history.
1: Okay, so um, according to Ooh. Alan Winston's research... Prohibition became a national constitutional amendment midnight on January 17, 1920. It was ratified then, or it was...
2: Went into effect.
1: It went into effect, right, because it was ratified earlier. Um, And the Volstead Act was passed to enforce the amendment. It was never actually illegal to drink during Prohibition.
0: And the dries, these are the people who wanted to have Prohibition, believe that alcohol is, is America's national curse... A ban would lower crime rates, straighten families out, improve the national character, but it never worked out that way.
1: They were so wrong.
0: The Women's Christian Temperance Union, the uh, WCTU, was one of the main forces behind the, um, the amendment. Uh, they taught as a scientific fact, this is the alternate fact, that the majority of beer drinkers died from edema. That's the swelling of your organs. Hmm.
1: So i just like to interject here, Chris, real quick um, that the, um, the temperance movement was led by a lot of the future women's leaders, women's movement leaders. Um, and one of the things I think that they were concerned about was that, um, the fact that women were being, uh, uh, was the issue of domestic abuse.
2: Right. And so, yeah, so one thing to keep in mind, I think is a lot of the movement grew out of some real concerns and real problems with, with right. drinking in society. That still exists. Yep. yep. And our expert's going to tell us more about yes, that. Yes, and we're watching sure. him, so he's, he's giving us a thumbs he's up. He's giving us something, saying everything right? yes. we yes. said yes. is correct. So <laughs> so, far, so good. Some, some vocabulary, <laughs> bootleggers, which I'm sure some people have heard, the people who alle- illegally made, imported, or sold alcohol during Prohibition. 3,000 Americans died every year from the effects of drinking tainted, illegal liquor from the black market, because, of course, it was not a regulated industry during Prohibition. It was it, all happening illegally.
0: Right. People are going to drink.
1: Speakeasies got their name because you had to whisper a code word or name, through a locked door in order to be allowed in. New okay. York City had nearly 32,000 speakeasy clubs, and Chicago had more than 7,000. I don't know why Chicago had so much fewer, though, but maybe.
0: They're not they not—they're—they're not as kind of vibrant as New Yorkers. Right. Yeah.
1: Well, I know that New York has always had a strong ratio of bars, more bars than, um, than houses of worship. Yeah,
0: maybe we need to drink more.
1: Or or less, Al Capone is estimated to have more have made sixty million dollars in alcohol sales in just 1927 alone, and that was in 1920 money. So yeah.
2: that's true. You have to adjust for, yeah. for inflation. Yeah, Bunch, so he was a billionaire, I bet. And and one thing we want to get to today is is that the the story of Long Island is is part and parcel of the story of Prohibition in New York. We think of Manhattan and 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 you know, Al Capone and everything, but. There, there is a deeper history, and what I love about my podcast is we get to go a little deeper. So I want to introduce our special guest for today. He is Jonathan Ali, a public historian and a curator at the Long Island Museum of American Art, History, and Carriages in Stony Brook, a museum that many of our listeners will know. He received his Ph.D. in American Studies from Brown User- University in 2013. And we're going to be drawing a lot today from his research, particularly an article uh, it, that he published, Long Island during Prohibition 1920 to 1933, which appeared in the Long Island History Journal. And it is
0: available online. Right? Yep. We, yep. All, we all read it here. <laughs> Very good. Well open, done. Open, open source. A lot
2: safe.
4: of information there.
2: So, Jonathan, first of all, thank you for, for coming in and well, sitting
4: thank you for me. drinking with us. That's yeah. What, 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 what are you drinking? Do you know? Uh, this is a beer that was made in Brooklyn. Uh, the name escapes me because it's actually one of the very small uh, microbreweries that tend to that have really blossomed on Long Island and in, in New York City in Absolutely. the past years.
0: Absolutely, thank thank God for the microbreweries. <laughs> I mean, it's introduced me to IPAs. So, so Jonathan, we're going to get some
2: some background first. Sure. Um, can you talk a little bit about the process for enacting the constitutional amendment to begin with?
4: Okay, so if we're going to, so as, um, as you mentioned, so Prohibition started on January 17th, 1920, and we mean like, you know, 12.01 a.m. Um, early that morning. Um, but and,
1: and, and I think in New York City uh, they had um, some kind of ceremonies, you know, like uh, the I'm death sure. of
4: the right. Like know. in many in many uh, bars around the country, they had these sort of like almost like public funerals of like you know like the death of alcohol and <laughs> Johnny um, Barleycorn. I mean, dead. right, exactly. Um, but it was actually anything but. Um, I mean, so you were you were actually going to witness kind of like a flowering of. Um, really discovering... I mean, like, alcohol was going to get a more prominent position during the 1920s, ironically, than um, it had in, during the 19th century. Um, because if you make something illegal, a certain percentage of us are going to want it even more. It's like if you have kids and tell them you can't do that or you can't have that, sometimes they're going to want it, you know, whether it's a tattoo or whether it's they want to get their lessons at 16 or 17. As, like, as soon as there's a threat that the gun laws are going to be hardened... People are going to... Gun... Gonna... gun, gun
0: Go sales guns. go up enormously, yeah. yeah. Right, exactly. Human nature.
4: Exactly. And so um, the story of prohibition actually goes back um, 90 years um, to the beginning of... The, so if you're going to talk about the prohibi- about prohibition, you need to talk about temperance temperance movement. And if you want to talk about the temperance movement, you need to go back to New Yorkers, Long Islanders, a uh, very long history with alcohol. And so, so in order to talk about what's going on here in the 1920s and 30s, we actually kind of have to go back to the colonial period. And, the, like, and basically like the Dutch. Um, and so European alcohol, of course, was first brought here by the Dutch in the 17th century. Um, they created the first uh, breweries and distilleries um, on Manhattan in the 17th century. Um, and they were making beer and, and uh, whiskey? Right, so they were making, so they were, uh, making beer, um, they were making rum. Um, and, but in the 19th century, um, especially once you get east of New York City, Um, Long Island is farming. Long Island is farming. It's fishing. It's agriculture, kind of depending on where you live, Um, and you know, typical farmer kind of grew a bit of everything. Um, They might grow grain. They might have an apple crop um, in some part of their farm, and um, some of that grain might go into the city. That might be sold to a brewery or distillery, Um, and um, apples. Some of those, sure, we'd, we'd use them for eating, we'd use them for cooking, um, but some of those would also be crushed every fall, um, often in like a community um, uh, cider press, and then it would be filtered through straw, and we'd go into barrels, and be allowed to ferment. Um, not, not a lot, but maybe like 3 or 4%, enough to kind of keep it from going bad. Um, and then those uh, barrels of cider would be uh, consumed at the table every day, um, because it was... Um, unfortunately, like having access to clean, fresh water um, was sometimes a rarity, depending on where you lived. And so alcohol was a common um, staple at the family table, uh, even for children. Um, because and the
0: alcohol in the liquid would kill any germs that might propagate. In right. Yeah.
1: right. And I, I think the first distillers, too, were farmers with that extra grain that they, you know.
4: Right. That, that makes sense. And it's it. also it's a way to create a value-added product. Um, because if you're just selling grain, you can only make so much money. But if you turn that grain into alcohol, it becomes a more exclusive, that's something that people have fewer of. So fewer farmers are doing that. And so if you have a barrel of cider to trade, that's gonna be more valuable and attractive and more expensive um, than if you just had like a bunch of crates of apples. There you go, there um, you go. And so um, there's a long history of making alcohol for local consumption here on Long Island. Uh, um, but also in these communities, you had hotels, you have, you had taverns, you had inns. And those were a central community place. Um, There are are places to congregate with your friends, to talk about politics. There are places for dances, for debates.
1: To have great conversations. To have great
4: conversations, just like we are now. It's Um, like a democratizing place. It's like the public square. Right, it really was, except indoors, and particularly in winter. Um, Yeah, It was a place where you could go to have a conversation, and naturally, alcohol would be on the menu. Um, and um, depending on, and sometimes that place would have rooms upstairs, for, uh, so you might have travelers coming from out of town. Interesting. Um, there'd be places for people to stay. Yep. And so they were really community institutions in that way. On one hand, there is a very wonderful uh, local story about alcohol and community life on Long Island. Hmm. I mean, it was a part of almost everybody's existence. Um, and also in certain, uh, depending on what religious group you belong to, Sometimes um, there might be sacramental wine involved with that. Um, And so it was typical to see alcohol as a part of kind of community life. Um, But then there was also a dark side to that. And like with many things, sometimes people consume that thing to excess, um, whether it's alcohol, drugs, or food. Um, And so that ended up by creating a lot of problems among a minority of people, probably in every community. Um, so people got drunk, people became alcoholic, um, and that <laughs> resulted in people, um, you know, they, they might spend their paycheck, um, or whatever they were given as compensation for their labor, um, on alcohol. Um, it led to domestic violence, um, in the home. Um, and so it did It also impoverish people. And um, what period are we talking about? And is it any different then than it was
0: now? People still abuse alcohol.
4: Right, but, um, if we're looking at sort of the colonial period into the first couple decades of the 19th century, um... Americans drink a lot more than than um, we do now. Um, really, maybe six times more. We got to
1: wow. work harder.
2: Um, now, so. now, when you say that, what, what's your what sort of the historical evidence? Is there records of
4: uh, different? Um, I, I don't know the citation off the top of my okay. head, but I know that various historians have said that we have drank many, many times more back then than we do now. Um, partially, that's because of the, like access to alternatives. I mean, like. You know, like today, you can go to any you know grocery store, or supermarket, and you know get juice. You can get water. Sure. You can Get tea. Right. Like you're saying, the, the um, water was not safe to drink most of the time. So right. You, and so, you like, needed something. Right. And um, especially like year round options. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we're looking at uh, wintertime you know, in, here in Patchog and you know it's the year 1810, um, your options might only be water or some sort of alcoholic beverage. Um, versus today, I mean, there's you know there's probably 20 different options.
0: Is there any is there any um, uh, information about the degree of uh, of alcohol that was in it? Like, I know my beer now has 7.9% alcohol. It's pretty high for an IPA. But did they know how much alcohol was in it? Is there any way of determining that?
4: Um, I think that um, a precise uh, percentage was probably difficult to determine.
1: It wasn't uh, regulated then. Right, right.
4: It certainly right. wasn't regulated. And so I think it was more um, you took the advice of the person who was making it. So, um, so Jonathan, was, so
2: what was the tipping point? Was, was there signpost or something that said, we've got to take legal action against this in society?
4: Right. So in America, in the 1820s, um, originated this uh, temperance movement. And so temperance, as the name implies, um, wasn't trying to ban alcohol. It was simply trying to sort of uh, rein in people's alcohol consumption. And so um, the, you had the first medical doctors in the, maybe the 1790s who recognized that, okay, alcohol is not great for the human body. Um, and certainly abusing it is terrible for the human body. It is poison. It is, it is, it is literally poison. Um, but then again, everything in moderation can be decent and okay for your health. Um, and, but by the 18-teens, 1820s um, in America, there was a recognition that there was a problem. And so you had the creation of temperance societies Uh, And the first one that I know of on Long Island uh, was created in Sag Harbor in 1829. And if you know anything about Sag Harbor, you know that it's a seaport um, in the eastern end of Long Island. It was a whaling port, especially in the early 19th century. Um, And so it had a lot of uh, alongshore businesses. It had a lot of sailors, whalemen. Um, You had um, bars, you had brothels, you had taverns. Um, so the liquor industry was alive and well. Yeah, um, especially
1: when those sailors came into port, because their whiskey had run out.
4: Right, exactly. And so you had people with a lot of disposable income um, who tended to spend that very quickly. Uh, and so, not surprisingly, that was the, the origination of one of the first temperance societies on Long Island. Um, and so that was founded, and I think it had a couple hundred members, um, divided evenly between men and women. Um, but then, um, from, once you get from the 1820s to the 1830s, you witness a radicalization of the temperance movement. Um, going from just kind of moderating your drinking um, and not consuming liquor, uh, so brandy, uh, whiskey, gin, rum, and instead fo- uh, drinking beer and wine. This was seen as seen as more measured and, of course, lower lower percentage alcohol uh, beverages to consume. Um, but once you get to the 1830s you start seeing the formation of total abstinence temperance societies. And so in Sag Harbor in 1838 was the creation of the total abstinence temperance society. And those also spread to children. Um, there was a young men's total abstinence temperance society because there was a belief among the organization that if you could get children not cons- to s- sort of pledge that they would not start drinking alcohol, um, that would be a way to prevent a future alcohol because they also believed that, oh, once you had your first drink, it was a slippery slope into inebriation, intoxication, violence, murder, death, sort of all these terrible things they believed that happened with the start of a civil sip. Um, so you had temperance organizations that had always been here fighting since the early 19th century, and this kind of young upstart organization led by women, um, which was competing against these sort of older, gen- older organizations dominated by men. Um, but the WCTU really became kind of the leading organization, and it was complemented by many other temperance organizations around the country, um, whether they were sort of um, uh, Christian, um, whether they had sort of Christian associations or like um, Masonic or Templar uh, backgrounds, um, or they were led by children um, with adults as heads. Um, and so that kind of gets us into the late 19th century. And these tend to gain more and more political power. Um, and, they st- and basically, like, change starts small. Um, so they start by petitioning um, village governments and then uh, town governments, county governments to ban the sale of alcohol, usually by outlawing saloons um, and then sort of like putting certain liquor, uh, uh, li- certain liquor laws like uh, we're going to ban Sunday sales and then we're going to ban Monday sales. And, um, so these laws become more and more restrictive on a local and then a state and then a national level. Um, until we get to about the start of America's entry in World War I, where I believe 27 U.S. states had already completely outlawed alcohol, and then the remaining states had some, had a various patchwork quilt of uh, local laws uh, that banned alcohol in certain communities or in certain counties. Um,
1: yeah, dry counties. Right.
4: I mean, New York was one of the was one of the holdouts um, because New York uh, State was was home to New York City, which then is now is the largest city in the country, and by default was also America's largest liquor market. Bunches Um, of bars, right? Bunches of bars, indeed. And so then, um, in 1917, you have the start of of America's entry in World War One, and then that leads to a lot of other um, curbs on the liquor industry because that grain is being reserved for the war effort. Mm -hmm. Um, And also during World War One, you're witnessing um, an explosion of anti-German sentiment, and the alcohol industry, certainly the beer industry in America, um, has been led, founded, championed uh, by Germans and German Americans. And so one way of expressing your anti-German um, sentiment was to push for the closing of German-American breweries um, and, you know, beer. And so uh, Germans... So beer,
0: beer and Germany were kind of put together. Right, and, and uh, german american to drink beer, then. To drink beer. Yeah. But it
4: was also... But it was part of... I'll german drink Mar- to that. Oh, yeah, cheers. I'll cheers. Drink Being not american drink.
1: Okay. <laughs> or <laughs> drinking beer? Drinking beer.
4: Um, but when Germans... And so Germans were the largest... Um, Immigration immigrant group in 19th century America. Um, and like the Irish were also up there but uh, by number, German-Americans were the largest immigrant group in 19th century America and they brought with them a culture of not only German, uh, making beer but also drinking it in beer halls and beer gardens and I mean that's like where our taste for lager beer came from and um, so when you had prohibition, so when prohibition and anti-alcohol sentiment came, um, Germans were often targeted. But for Germans, um, these were not like you know places of ill repute. I mean, beer halls and beer gardens—they were family-friendly. Right. Um, you had um, musical, you had uh, live performances, you had musical acts. Um, you like often you also had uh, food being served there. So these are places to go for an afternoon or to go for an evening with your family. It was not necessarily
0: about alcohol.
4: Right, I mean, How alcohol was part, part of it, yeah. exactly. So these weren't places to go and to, you know, drink to excess often. Not a it was, dive bar. Right, these, these were not dive bars. They were family-friendly. You'd have kids running around, maybe pets. Um, and then, like, waiters would be serving food and alcohol. Right. Um, but unfortunately, by the early 20th century, these places get tarred with a very thick um, anti-German brush. And so a lot of these places are being pushed to get shut down. But Prohibition is also targeting peop- uh, working-class people who aren't drinking, tend to be drinking at home, but they tend to be going out to drink. Um, So if you're working class, um, maybe you're a German uh, immigrant or you're a German American, um, or if you're Irish American, a lot of um, groups tended to go out and to drink in um, social settings.
1: Also, the KKK, which was an Aryan white nationalist organization, they joined the temperance movement as well.
4: The Klan actually kind of wrapped itself in the American flag um, by associating itself with law and order and by um, choosing to be prohibition advocates, that dovetailed really well with kind of like all the groups they hated. Um, they hated people of color, Jews, Catholics, um, immigrants from southern and eastern Europe. Germans? Germans, right, yeah, um, Germans. And um, and so they were trying to um, to keep these people from gaining cultural and political power. And coincidentally, quince- that dovetailed nicely with the pe- with the groups that often tended to be hurt by prohibition laws. Yep. And so bu- and so the Klan um, in the 1920s in America and here on Long Island um, was very active and they saw themselves as some of the enforce the enforcers of prohibition. Um, they would work along with prohibition agents, they would work along with local police departments. And this is here on, here this on, this Long, is here Island. on Long Island.
1: Well, you said they'd work in with the law enforcement. I mean, were they given some kind of a I don't know Official position
4: Official position Um, I mean it kind of varied On a case by case basis Um, For example uh, There is an infamous example In Hampton Bays In the 1920s Where Prohibition agents Had set up a roadblock um, Because there's a The Shinnecock Canal Is right there And if you want to get to um, The the South Fork of Long Island You have to go across this canal Which means you have to go Across this bridge And so Prohibition prohibition agents Set up a checkpoint um, There And they were searching cars They came one by one and so you had the, you had your uniform prohibition agents um, who are, you know, they carry badges and they have identification, but there are also these, all these other helpers um, okay. that are not wearing uniforms. And um, I mean, they're also not dressed as Klansmen, um, but if you know, but also Long Island is a very small place at that time. And it's, you kind of recognize oh, it, okay yeah. that, oh, that person Joe. is, yeah. yeah, there's Joe. I know there's yeah, I Joe's know. brother yeah. and like Joe's brother is in the Klan and Joe right. with his other friends are helping to search these cars. Right. Um, and so, you d- you did have, a- and so the, the Klan was definitely part of the story of Prohibition on Long Island as it was elsewhere.
2: So let, let's um, go back to that fateful night, nineteen twenty. The law goes into effect. What is the law? What can we now not do? What what you know? What, what's the practical implication of Prohibition coming into effect?
4: Okay, so the Eighteenth Amendment is really, really short. It's three lines, so I apologize. Uh, so, like, I'm going to read okay. it. Oh, really? So, Get out. so <laughs> three lines. So, the 18th Amendment is literally three lines. So, it says, after one year from the eradication of this article, the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors within the importation thereof into or the exportation thereof from the United States and all territory subject to the jurisdiction thereof for beverage purposes is hereby prohibited. So, that is that is the only relevant text of the 18th Amendment. That's it? Now, but the problem is, that is really vague. Right? It doesn't and so explain, yeah. That's why, as well, you mentioned, um, the Congress then had to pass enforcing legislation, because like, right. that's the goal, um, but then you have to actually back that up with laws. And
1: that's 20 pages or something. Right,
4: and so there, therefore you get the National Prohibition Act, which is commonly called the Volstead Act, after one of the sponsors. <laughs> and so Congress um, passed that in October of 1919, um, Woodrow Wilson vetoed it. Um, and then Congress overrode that veto um, bo- in both the House and the Senate, and so that was finally passed into law on October 28th, 1919, and then that law was set to go into effect on January 17th, 1920.
1: Okay, I'm curious, and this is a little left turn here, but were there any prohibition laws passed in other countries that you know of during that time, or...? Yes,
4: um, and so... so it's not um, uncommon. Right, so uh, there, were, there were various levels of this. Um, I... Let's uh, see, so... I believe uh, Canada had a version of Prohibition. However, it was still legal to manufacture and sell alcohol to other countries, including the United States. Oh, okay. Um, so there was a thriving... <laughs> nice. uh, I like that. Yes. And Canada. Go Canada.
1: Canada. Right.
4: Because, you know, like, Canada was smart and didn't want to like, hurt their own you know, Canadian you know, liquor and beer businesses. And so Very smart. And they knew Americans were still drinking. Right, exactly. Right. And they, actually, they the, the single busiest border crossing was actually at Detroit, because um, I'm blanking on the name of the Canadian city right across from I Detroit. I told you, we were just um, there. Uh, Windsor, I'm sorry. So, so, uh, Windsor. Windsor, yeah, yeah. So, Windsor, Ontario. Okay. And they're right across um, the Detroit River from each other. Yeah. And so, that was the single busiest uh, <laughs> border uh, okay. between Canada and the United States. Right. Wow, wow.
0: So, so uh, we we were gonna we were gonna say that what was the law exactly? Um, we um, we were allowed to drink, but we couldn't do
4: other things. Okay, so um, to summarize the Volstead Act, uh, you were so you were not allowed to make alcohol for for, for beverage purposes. You were not allowed to distribute it, and you're not allowed to sell it. However, um, but you can drink. But if you, well, right, okay, right, right. It, okay, right. So, um, so th- you're you're seeing the huge holes here. Um, so, um, you were there was no law against drinking alcohol, um, and you were certainly it was perfectly legal to stockpile it. So, like during nineteen nineteen, it was perfectly legal to buy alcohol to stockpile to then drink. Privately in your own home during prohibition for the next thirteen years. Um, right, for the next thirteen years, uh, <laughs> and pharmacists uh, sure. could prescribe it. Right, and so there were three. There were three very very large exceptions um, in the in the Volstead Act. Um, you were still allowed to uh, make alcohol for uh, medici- uh You were still allowed um, to. There were three. Let's see. There was an industrial exception. There was a medicinal exception. And there was a religious, religious exception. for the oh God, What's Church? the industrial exception? Well, I mean, alcohol... I got a uh, drink to work on this It's used lake? in
1: alcohol. I mean, it's used in industry. Alcohol is used in industry.
4: Oh, you mean... Um, it's in used in manufacturing. It's used in making paint, for example. Making gasoline. Gasoline, but that's like oh. rock gut alcohol. Well, right, right, right. And and they were supposed to, and uh, the manufacturers were supposed to put in like certain poisons and things to make it so that you physically couldn't drink it. But then um, <laughs> people, people would anyway. try to think of ways to try and take out that poison. Or, um, but right. So Those there are, are exceptions the for were industry, dying. for medicine, you know, for medicine, and I'm using air quotes on that. And uh, and for religious purposes. Okay.
1: Okay. So wait, we were talking to um, Jerry Mir at the Old Town Bar, in New York City. Uh, they've been in business for 126 years. Uh, he said that their bar closed and reopened as a restaurant
0: during in 1920. But they had, years.
1: but they had, you know, places to hide liquor under the, the seats and. and he fa- in fact
0: showed us. We, we were there and we interviewed him. And, and um, Jerry Amir is the owner of the old town, with town tavern with my brothers and sisters. With your brothers and sisters. Yeah. Okay. We're the old town tavern here on 18th. Street and 4518th Street yeah between Park and Broadway right right and uh, we want to talk about the old tavern first
3: but yeah I mean this is 1892 when this was built and it was uh, a German uh, built place and they tended to build things to last and uh, so we have mahogany bar we have high beveled mirrors and we have a 17 foot uh, tin ceiling and we're sitting
0: in a, a booth is this originally what it looked like
3: as far as I know, we have pictures going back to the 20s and 30s. Nothing really much before then, but right. we we have a good feeling that it was it was V Meisters originally in the 1890s, and that we pretty much think it was the same. And that was the original owner, original the original building? Yeah, yeah. So
1: the 20s would have been during Prohibition. So what were the pictures showing?
3: Well, the pictures, uh, well, I mean <laughs> that time, around that time. It, it, say, it shows the same place. You know, it's, it, you But know. it doesn't
1: have pictures of people sitting drinking? No, no. <laughs> that <laughs> would have been yeah, proof no, positive. <laughs> yeah.
3: The place was uh, changed at that time to Craig's Restaurant. It became Craig's Restaurant um, from... from 1920 to 19 until the the family uh, took it over and it became uh, Old Town, and um, but what we understand and I knew Henry who was still going to Stuyvesant high school in the 30s when his father took it over and he um, Henry Loden was the owner with his father Klaus and you know they were German Americans and they. and Henry lived to the mid '80s, so I got you know we would talk to
0: him, and he was. Um but during Prohibition, there there was a drop off in business, and this this place turned into a restaurant. Yeah, was there any, as far as you know, any drinking done here? Well, this is we, a bar. we we understand that there was.
3: Now, I think. And my family was—I mean, we—we we have roots in Williamsburg, and we were actually uh, my great grandfather, my great uncle were the political bosses of Williamsburg, and we've heard going back the 1890s through the 1930s, and—and and what we heard is uh, that my great uncle and my my grandfather—they, we had the the. Um, the fertilizer uh, contract for Brooklyn Parks in those days. And Pretty fertilizer good. in those days was horse manure. Uh-huh. And what my family would do would be put liquor underneath the horse manure. Oh. That makes sense. So uh, that it would be very rarely looked into. Exactly. You know? <laughs> I would imagine, but <laughs> then the bottles would need to be kind of... Nothing is inside. Well, well, strong, inside, it, well it put them in cases, whatever. But, yeah. okay. but I'm saying is that there was, I think there was had a half winks in New York concerning prohibition. Yeah, New, New uh, York didn't take to to uh, being dry. Yeah, yeah. Well. and what we understand, at least in the old town, is the, the booth I'm sitting in, you know, which kind of moves out.
0: Oh, yeah. We're de- uh, Jerry's demonstrating how the the bottom of the booth where we're sitting kind of can pull up. And what we heard is that the uh,
3: liquor bottles or stuff, they had this raid, and Tammany Hall at that time was only around the corner right, on yeah. 17th Street. So that they kind of, um, uh, you know, I mean the people that ran New York, a lot of them were in my family, was Irish and American, we weren't big drinkers, but they, you know, it was something that, that was important to their, you know, lifestyle. It was important. So to a lot. I think they, yeah, I think yes. they winked. You know, I mean, it was a winking with Tammany Hall, and you know, I mean, you didn't want to, I guess, be too obvious, but I think that it did happen. Yes. Actually, we had a movie done here. We've had a lot of movies done here, but one was with. Uh, uh, jackie gleason and art carney the last time they were together it was called izzy and mo it was about prohibition they played prohibition agents and uh in the movie they they come in here and they they do this sort of uh you know bony so, ray so jackie
0: gleason and art carney might have been sitting might here have been sitting or walking or sitting. Right, yeah. right
3: around here yeah, yeah 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 it was gleason wasn't in great shape at that point but you know, it was an interesting take on it. So we we told them about this boot and all that sort of stuff to kind of add some insight. You're, I mean, we were here then.
0: Yeah, yeah. This was the mid '80s or so. You were you're, you're yeah. a young yeah. man at that time. Yeah. 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 New York City didn't really fully support the uh, the prohibition movement. Yeah. Is there something about New York City that just is not going to have its bars taken away? Um... I think it's it's the general population
3: that, it, and actually I have it reminds me of a story. I have a friend that I went to college with that, um, actually the the, uh, the Carlissimos who were you know, uh, one of their cousins was uh, uh, was the uh, coach, a basketball coach and such, and and they had the license to do uh, communion wine in New Jersey, you right. know, around Newark.
1: Which was the only thing that was still legal. Yeah, in it was legal, of, yeah. but you, you
3: could, you know, produce maybe some extra bottles, you know, for, you know. So there were a little, everybody worked the margins right. on right. these sorts of things, and it could be very lucrative because yeah. it was, you know, it wasn't that av- uh, much available. So, you so, know, so, yeah. so I'm saying is that people, you know, ingenuity, uh
0: <laughs> came into play in these
1: right?
3: Words.
0: Because people wanted to drink. I mean, there was that great movement to get people to stop drinking. Yeah. But it's kind of, you know, if we like it, we like it. Yeah,
3: and and uh, I mean, we had a, uh, you know, we still have a house in Williamsburg, you know, where I grew up and my, you know, my great-grandfather built the house and, and next door was uh, a Sicilian family. And they, he would stomp grapes in the basement, you know, get grapes and, and make his own wine. So, right. you, know, there, you know, there are many ways to skin a cat,
0: you know, and I think the cat was skinned. We want to thank uh, Jerry Meir, who yeah. uh, has been t- speaking to us about his um, uh, bar, the Old Town Bar. And restaurant. And restaurant. Thank you, Jerry. Okay, you're welcome. Meir, thank you. Uh, owner of the Old Town Bar.
1: So, what did people do? What kind of shenanigans did they do to get around these laws and continue drinking.
4: Okay. Um, And especially, like, let's say, for example, you owned a bar and suddenly prohibition comes. So what What do you do? What do you do? Right, exactly. What do you do? Um, And then we'll talk about people, about the the drinkers from from the other side of the bar. bar. Um, So if you own a bar, um, naturally, like, that's your livelihood. That's your trade. That's what you know. Um, You could stay in business um, by serving what was called near beer. Um, so which was um, it could be no more than a half a percent of alcohol, so zero point five percent alcohol. And so your typical beer um, is generally around like four, five, or six percent of alcohol, or like mine, which is seven point nine percent. Right, exactly. Okay. Um, and there was certainly that at the time. <laughs> I think I um, had five point five. Okay. <laughs> and so, um, bre- and so, brewers, um, whether you're um, like on a national scale, or like you're, you own a brewery in, in Brooklyn, or like you're a bar that happens to brew your own beer. You could continue to brew beer, but you had to essentially water it down to that 0.5%. And so that was, and so that was commonly called near beer. And naturally, it tasted mostly like water because it mostly was water. Yeah. Um, and um, those were also bottled and canned and sold commercially um, under a, a variety of different names. Um, but that's not drinking. That's not. Well, no, no. Okay, okay. But, but I'm simply saying right. like that's that's one option of like what what you can ha- what you can sell at right. your bar
1: in the Pinel. Um, okay.
4: if, if you try to stick to the letter of the law, try right? To so follow if you're, the so law. if you're trying to follow the letter of the law, um, you can continue to sell near beer. That's one option. Um, you can sell what we're called temperance drinks, which are essentially you know like fancy non-alcoholic sodas. Basically, like you make some sort of interesting concoction. Um, that has like a certain pickiness or carbonation, and you know it, it's something fun to drink while you're at a bar, pretending that pretending it's a real thing. Um, and so you had temperance drinks. Um, you know, grape juice might be popular, um, or so those were your two uh, legal avenues that you could actually I sell. I want to know about the Alan, yeah, Alan yeah, Alan wants that. Okay, the okay, Or you know, or you could send, or you could sell um, illegal alcohol. Uh, whether that was beer that you were brewing and not watering down, whether that was um, illegal, uh, you know, liquor that you were distilling, you know, in, a, in like a back room, or whether that was something that you were buying on the black markets. Um, so, if and also, uh, it was not hard to find a place to get a drink during Prohibition, um, and it was often not as secret as people seem to think with speakeasies because. Most of the places where you got a drink before Prohibition was where you went during Prohibition because, like, a lot of those places stayed open um, because it might be, like, a, a hotel that had a bar and that, you know, that hotel's not going to close. And so they would often keep the bar open but they're ostensibly only serving temperance drinks and near beer. Um, and so a lot of, like, the the taverns or the inns um, they would can essentially stay open, but so supposedly they would just be selling non-alcoholic beverages. Right. Um, but depending on who you knew, if you were a longtime customer and they knew that you weren't going to squeal on them, um, you know, like if they're putting a glass right in front of you, um, it could look exactly the same as like a glass of beer beer, but unless you're drinking it, that's the only way you'd know.
0: All right, but but there but there was enforcement, both in Long Island and New York City, an attempt to stop this kind of illegal drinking of this sinful liquid. Yeah, yeah but um, in New
1: York City, if, if someone from the Tammany Hall came by that old town cavern that we were in, yeah. and, and and he said, this is our near beer that we sell, and he would take us. yeah, that's near beer, that's fine. Right, you so I, my, my question like, is, was,
0: was the enforcement different in New York City than it was in Long Island? Because we heard in New York City, they kind of turned, turned a blind eye to it. But yet you see pictures all over of, of these men, always men, who are pouring out right. liquor, rum, and breaking beer. Breaking open the cask. Breaking and, yeah, open the cask yeah. and it's gushing out.
4: Right. I mean, um, on one hand, you had a very small number, comparatively, of law enforcement officials um, in this constant game of whack-a-mole. I mean, because if, clo- oh, if, I mean, <laughs> if, if you close down like you there know, you an, an illegal uh, drinking establishment, another one's going to open, or two more are going to open. Um, you know, or, like, you, you uh, raid a place and close it. I mean, like, you know, sure, like, basically, like, that person might have to pay a fine, but then eventually they can reopen that establishment. Um, it's whack a drunk mall. Yeah, indeed. There you go. Um, and so you had um, a comparatively small number of federal prohibition agents and then um, local state police. I mean, well, uh, on the state level, you had state police. Um, and then in some sort of uh, municipal level, you had municipal, municipal police, uh, the... There was no Suffolk County Police Department yet. That was created in the 1960s. Um, but Nassau County's police force was actually created during Prohibition in 1925, partially as a result to all this law breaking.
1: Oh, okay. All right.
4: And um, but you had comparatively few law enforcement officials for the rampant law breaking. And plus, if you're a police officer and I mean like who's who's running a department that's short staffed, Are you going to raid a speakeasy or are you going to try to attend to the car accident that just happened over here or the murder that happened over here? I mean, like, so, like, raiding a bar could be fairly low on your to-do list. And so um, they might make a good faith effort in trying to, you know, occasionally raid an, uh, an illegal still or to close a speakeasy. But that was just one of many things that needed to be attended to if you're trying to enforce law, in, whether it's in New York City or out here in Long Island.
1: And there were federal agents, though, too, weren't they? But right. I guess they were going after the importers and the exporters.
4: Right. And so that's a question of, you know, like, you, if you're, if if you're trying to figure out, like, how to best to budget your law enforcement time, you generally want to go after, like, not like some random basement beer brewer who's like you know making like drinks for them and their friends on like a neighborhood level, but like you want to go after the person who has like the two thousand gallons still in some warehouse somewhere in um, the Al Capone, the gangster. Yeah. right. I mean, sure. you want to go after the, the you want Runner. to go after the big fish um, because those are like the biggest. I mean, like you're kind of doing the greatest good with the, with um, what what resources you have. Yeah. And Al- Alan, you mentioned rum runners. We're looking yeah. at a there's a map of
2: Long Island on the wall behind us. There you us. go. And, and it's 118 miles, but the coastline is—you know—there's bays and coves, and, and you know. So, can you tell us a little stories about how how liquor was being brought onto Long Island? You in You know, all it's the interesting.
0: We're looking at the map, and it, this is a current map. But most of the brewers seem to be along the coast. I mean, there's a, yeah, there's it's a, a map with with middle. yeah, brewer. Right. labels, stickers on them. And they and they seem to be more along the coast. I wonder if that's a carryover from that. But go on, ask your question. Yeah, no,
2: and and you know, as many people know, Long Island had a developed a fishing industry, so there's a lot of people with boats, small boats, they were good at navigating the bays and stuff. So, tell us a little bit about the experience of how Long Islanders reacted and how the liquor got here.
4: Okay, so it's 1920, and you know, like the sale, transportation, and manufacture of alcohol is illegal. So... That means that you either have to make it, or you have to get it from somewhere else, and that somewhere else was, generally, was by water. If we're talking like Long Island, if we're talking New York State. Um, I mean, like in northern New York State, it came across the Canadian border. But so if we're talking, if we're looking at Long Island, um, it needs—it's going to come from, um, from—it's going to come from across the water, and so you had um, the territorial limit. The federal territorial limit was uh, three miles offshore. And so what happened was you had um, a whole bunch of entrepreneurial people who decided to buy an old boat, um, buy some liquor, usually buy either you can get that in the Caribbean or you can get that in Canada. Um, and there was also um, two tiny French islands um, in the Canadian Maritimes um, called uh, St. Pierre and Miquelon. Um, and th- that was a famous uh, alcohol essentially depot. And so you had um, these entrepreneurs who would take any old, anything that floated. Um, they would go and buy alcohol, and then they would anchor three miles off the coast of Long Island and just wait. And then you had all these small boats um, from you know, these, all, these, all these villages and towns on the south shore of Long Island that would, that would essentially motor out there um, and buy some alcohol. And then you would bring that back to Long Island, and either that would be consumed locally in bars such as this one, or they would be put on trucks and then sent into New York City. Um, Because, sure, you can can consume some alcohol locally, but if you're looking to make a lot of money, you need to acquire a lot of alcohol and then send it to where a lot of alcohol is consumed or resold. Right, right. And so that started immediately in 1920. Um, I mean, you have um, uh, McCoy, was obviously one of the, I mean, like, today we know the phrase the real McCoy, um, but that was the last name of a man, um, and he bought an old fishing schooner, and he was one of the first, essentially, entrepreneurs who did this, um, and, and, he, and he was one of the first people to realize that, oh, okay, like, we can actually anchor three miles offshore, the Coast Guard can't do anything to us, because, like, they're kind of stuck at that three-mile three limit, and as, ad, as added insurance, we're going to re-register our vessels as um, under another flag, um, you know, and just like today, like you can register your sure. vessel, and you know, and just, um, just like a lot of like yachts today are, are registered in like Delaware or in other states, um, even though if they tend to have their lives here in Long Island, in New York or Long Island. Um, and so the Coast Guard was hamstrung at the start of Prohibition. Um, they were short staffed. They had few boats, few men, and there was this whole fleet of ships off of Long Island, and like who were just. Um, doing a really brisk trade and selling alcohol to Long Islanders, who were then often sending that alcohol into New York City for distribution elsewhere.
0: And this alcohol, it was coming from Europe or Canada or? It was
4: coming from um, it was coming from Europe. Often it would go from Europe uh, to the Caribbean and Europe to Canada, and then for um, movement then into into the United States. Right,
0: right.
2: And and there was no, you know, I, I've talked to a few people. I'm sure you've talked to more. These stories, you know. A lot of levels of society were participating in this. There didn't didn't seem to be any
4: legal or moral qualms about it. it. It was. How do you explain that, or what's your thoughts on? So this is the challenge of prohibition. Is that like there was no neutral ground. Everybody had to take a side, um, and this could divide families. This would divide churches. This would divide social organizations and, and businesses. Um, everybody kind of had to decide like, okay, were you going to drink, or not drink, and what were you going to do about all the, about this sort of um, spread of illegal alcohol? Um, Because there was the opportunity, if you wanted to make money um, with illegal alcohol, there is an opportunity everywhere. Um, Because wherever there's a market and demand for something, is somebody willing to make it? Um, And especially once we get into, like after 1929, we get the stock market crash, the entry into the Great Depression, Um, like jobs are, you know, are fewer and fewer to find here in Long Island. And so, you had the option to make a lot of money really quickly, and it becomes this moral and ethical question of you know like what's it worth to you? Um, for example, there's the example of um, Fred Pitts. He was a he was a teenager out in Montauk um, in the 1920s. Uh, I believe he was 14. I think his dad was uh, was injured, and so he couldn't really provide for the family. And there aren't a lot of job opportunities out in Montauk, and so. A, um, as Fred described later um, in the 1970s when he was interviewed by a local newspaper, um, a benefactor um, supplied him with a like an 85-foot motorboat with uh, three 500-horsepower engines, and it was his job. He had like, one 12-year-old crewman, and it was their job wow. to motor from Montauk out to um, Rum Row. Um, and, uh, it's actually called Rum Row? It was, so, like the name of so the name of uh, of that fleet of uh, liquor ships that were, that were anchored off the south shore of Long Island was called Rum Row. Yeah. Um, that wasn't unique to Long Island. I mean, there were Rum Rows like off of Los Angeles. There were Rum Rows off of Florida. And, um, the,
1: and the Coast Guard could do nothing. They're just staring at them.
4: Right. So we'll get to that. Okay, um, but okay, so, like, okay. basically, between 1920 and 1924, um, the Coast Guard essentially can't touch you if you're three miles offshore because that's you're in international waters. I believe if you're an American flag vessel, they can still um, detain you and board you and arrest you. Um, but if you're flying the flag of another country, they cannot touch you. Um, that has to do with maritime international law. Um, and so uh, Fred Pitts um, had this essentially part-time job um, like driving um, this uh, smuggling boat. And he would take this motorboat. It would go from Montauk. And he had this uh, 45-mile round-trip run. He would go from Montauk out to Rum Row. And um, he was given one half of a $2 bill. And when he got to the ship, he was supposed to give it to somebody, and they would match it up with another... with the exact other half of that bill to verify that yes, he was that person. Wow. Um, And how much alcohol, um, basically it was like a shopping list. And like it was already, um, basically organized crime had already determined like, okay, you're going to go out and your boat's going to be loaded with like, you know, this number of cases of, you know, like a brandy, of whiskey, of beer, whatever, um, of wine. And then you would turn around and your job is to get back to land. Um, You know, like, and you need to avoid the Coast Guard. Um, You know, you need to avoid rocks. You need to avoid, you know, like sandbars um, but, you know... Clearly it's done at night. Right. This is, this. is I'm sorry. Yeah, right. And so this is usually done at night, you know, kind of like almost the worst weather, the better, um, because that wow. makes it harder for the Coast Guard to find you. Um, so, like... Um, so and you're loaded down with liquor. Right. You um, have to be a good sailor. Right. So you have to be naturally a good sailor. You have to know the waters. You definitely have to be local. Um, and so that means that, like, often these organized crime figures who tend to be based in, like, say, New York City have to hire locals because, like, local watermen, local fishermen know these waters better than anybody. And so Fred Pitts... Um, would make these runs and um, he, I believe he was paid I want to say $400 for a trip and that's about $6,000 in today's money and especially during the Great Depression I mean like that's a lot of money yeah. and so that was what he saw as like, necessary to, put, to provide for his family and it was a way to make money, and I'm sure he was a teenager, and it was probably kind of exciting. But, I mean, he was shot at by the Coast Guard, and he could die every trip that he made out there. And supposedly, eventually, he eventually gave it up. Um, I think because um, eventually he was going to get married, and his wife wanted him to quit, so he didn't die. Oh, um, man. That would be good. Yeah. But, but so that was the story that Fred passed on in the, in the 1970s. Civilizing force of women. Yeah.
0: yeah. Wow. Uh, this, this topic, we could go on and on and on about it. And, and I, I, I refer to people to your article, uh, yeah, you uh, but, want to make one other point. Yeah, yeah. but so
4: uh, one other point is that um, so you have these local people who are um, smuggling alcohol, um, and then you have the Coast Guard who has this really unfortunate job of trying to enforce it. Right. And um, But in 1924, um, there's a crucial change in prohibition law. And so co- Congress finally appropriates money to, f- to give more um, funds to the Coast Guard to enforce prohibition. Um, so that um, allows them to hire a lot more men, and that, that allows them to build a lot more boats. And also, Congress um, uh, signs treaties with a lot of European nations allowing the searching of vessels up to 12 miles offshore. Oh. Okay. So now, Rum Row moves from 3 miles offshore to 12 miles Which offshore. Which
1: is much more treacherous,
4: yeah. I right. would think. And so that's a lot more water um, that you have to try and cross if you're one of the small boats that's going between Rum Row and shore. Right. Um, and at that time, Congress suddenly has, or uh, the Coast Guard has a lot more money and a lot more boats to chase you. Right. And, um... And so that makes it much harder. And, but at the same time, you also have kind of an arms race in terms of boats. Um, because uh, the, 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 basically uh, a lot of these um, government contracts are being given to local shipyards. Um, so for example, uh, you had Freeport Point Shipyard, uh, run by the Skopinish family in Freeport. And they, would be, uh, they were filling government contracts to build boats for the Coast Guard. Um, but you also had local Get rum out. runners that would ask them to build boats as well Get because they see like, oh, okay, because like the, the specifications for these Coast Guard boats was known, and so if you were a rum runner, you simply asked for a boat with more horsepower that was bigger <laughs> that could wow. definitely outrun the little Coast little Guard boats. Yeah. And you probably um, had more
0: money to pay for it. Right, And yeah. well,
4: at least after the first run. Um, and sometimes, because um, I, um, I spoke with Fred Skopinich, and it was his um, his father, um, he um, his father and his uncle um, operated uh, Freeport Point Shipyard at the time, and sometimes uh, somebody who might be contracting them to build a boat would borrow it right before it was completed um, to make a few trips, and then they had money to finish <laughs> paying for the boat. Um, and so you had um, rum runner boats and coast guard boats. They were built in the same shipyard. And if you had any brains to you, you would make sure that your rum runner boat was, you know, like had an extra engine or maybe two extra engines, that could, um, so that you could outrun the coast guard.
1: So is that one of those um, stories only on Long Island? Yes.
4: So I mean, I'm sure that I'm sure people figured this out elsewhere. Uh, but at least on Long Island, people understood that like this is this is the way that the that the, the business worked. That's I have amazing. a
2: somewhat related question. So to get to your role at the museum, and I know you've done exhibitions on on uh, prohibition. What's one or two objects that you found that that you think tell this story nicely, or that you you know the most interesting artifact you found to help illuminate this?
4: Um, so uh, there was a, uh, a retired scuba diver um, who had found this uh, wreck of a tugboat um, that had sunk off of Long Beach um, during Prohibition. And when it sank in the 1920s, um, they didn't know where it sank or why it sank. Um, but it had just gone out um, ostensibly on like a, like a deep-sea tow to pick up some vessel in distress, and then it had disappeared. And they didn't know what happened to it, until divers in, I believe, the 1970s found this wreck. And they found, that, like, the hull was full of all these bottles of liquor. Oh, wow. And so um, they realized that, oh, it was actually a rum runner. And um, unfortunately, had gone out, probably perhaps got caught in bad weather, and unfortunately sank. Um, and so uh, the scuba diver and his friends um, recovered some of this alcohol, and actually they had to try it. Um, and because like there were some of some of these um, of these bottles were still intact, um, and and they'd been under the water for forty years for, for about fifty you know, for fifty, 50 years, years or more, and
1: the alcohol wouldn't have evaporated.
4: It would, um, some of it does like evaporate through, and, like if you have like, you know, like a bottle of liquor sitting on the shelf, like yeah, some of I it know. will it, evaporate. Yeah, I know, it'll evaporate, the, right. but right. I would
1: think underwater it might not have.
4: Right, so it wouldn't do that, but also unfortunately some of the seawater would seep through uh, the cork. okay. Um, and so it yeah. tastes as you would expect yeah. to have like, it's a little salty. this now. was also, I mean, <laughs> A, this was not an amazing alcohol to begin with, Okay. and then B, like 50 years later, and C, mix it with a little bit of seawater, right, tastes right, is what right. you would expect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it was disgusting. Um, yeah, Okay. Is there any long-term
0: um, um, res- resonance of prohibition in Long Island that that we're living through today? Uh, or is it dead? Is it over?
4: Um, both here in Long Island and um, nationally, the growth of organized crime really got a huge boost because of prohibition, um, because that's sort of what happened, is that um, when prohibition started, smuggling alcohol was just a local thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the sheer amount of money that could be made, um, especially if you um, increased your scale of the smuggling, um, made it into a big business. Um, And so organized crime, um, whether it's centered in Chicago, whether it's centered in New York City, uh, quickly came to dominate the industry. So if you had a large, say, 2,000-gallon still in West Sayville, it probably wasn't being operated operated independently by some random farmer who, who like who really wanted to make alcohol and instead of like raising chickens um, it was probably operated by some gangster with connections to New York or Brooklyn
0: so prohibition in long island was kind of a, uh, a a place where where organized crime was tutored into well, what all over the country, into now. what they could do as they move forward
4: right and you could also argue that um, so it's sort of like uh, organized crime kind of put together a network um, of how to smuggle and manufacture and make alcohol, um, and once you well. get kind of in the mid and late 20th century, that could also transition to smuggling drugs sure. um, or, you know, opiates or, um, you know, or whatnot. Right. Um, so in terms of um, organized crime, um, that's probably the single greatest legacy of prohibition, both in New York and the United States and here along out Well well, and we, Jonathan, we
2: want to thank you. First of all, we will, we will link to that article. There's a lot more for people to study. And we will also point people to the Long Island Museum of American Art in Stony Brook. There's a lot to see there, and I'm sure curation uh, exhibits are always changing. So there's there's definitely a lot of Long Island history for all of us to learn. So I want to thank you. We both, we all thank you for coming yes, out today. We'll continue so our much. drinking, but we'll... Uh, oh yeah. I we'll,
0: uh, here at, at the unnamed uh, bar we're at, it used to be called Hoptron. Um, and it's returning to a Nashville, a new Nashville style right. bar. Yeah.
1: So today we are Long Island History Project and Bar Crawl Radio recording at Patchalk at the well to be named To Be
0: Named Bar. Bar.
1: <laughs> and we will 20, and 22
0: West Main Street. Correct. Yes. Right.
1: And we have been talking about prohibition. <laughs>